Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Little Men of County Bravadas by Ian Gordon Preface It's been a while, said Jack Gill, staring at the back of Norman Kane's head, as the two passed through the latter's bookshop on Tib Street, in the direction of the basement. Well, as you may or may not be aware, Kane returned over his shoulder, there are certain days of the week the private collection must remain off-limits. So I've heard, Gill acknowledged, knowing better than to press his friend on the subject, better to wait for Kane to tender the information in his own time. The visitor watched as Kane fumbled with the familiar wooden bistro chair, the tipping of whose legs served to reveal a secret door. From the hidden pocket of his smoking jacket came the iron key, and, following a few awkward moments, involving Kane, the key, and a pair of plastic hands, the door was unlocked, and the two were descending into the gloom below. This was Gill's third visit to the private collection, and, just as on previous visits, he followed his friend down the steep steps with a belly full of fluttering butterflies. The excitement was practically in his throat. Kane's collection was like no other. Nowhere else in the vast city of Manchester could one hope to get a glimpse of books the likes of Barlow's Discretion, or objects the likes of the Patterdale Whistle. Again, Gill's wide eyes devoured the sights before him, the walls decorated with obscure publications and ephemera, tall display cabinets host to peculiar relics and one-of-a-kind souvenirs. On this occasion, Kane guided Gill to a small rosewood bureau in a dark corner of the room. "'Now then, Jack,' he said, studying his friend intently, Spent much time in Bolton? Gill nodded. Yeah, well, a few visits over the years. Mainly walks over Winter Hill. Kane nodded. Does the name Margaret Fletcher mean anything to you? Gill frowned. Can't say it does. Kane turned and approached the bureau. After dialing a five-digit number into a combination lock, a yielding click was heard. The keeper of the private collection proceeded to open the previously locked writing flap, and there within were revealed a variety of cubbyholes and drawers. She were a dollmaker,' Kane announced, pointing a plastic finger in the direction of one of the drawers. As the shopkeeper slid the drawer open, the visitor stepped forward in order to get a better look at its contents. A bundle of crumpled brown paper met his gaze. The man in the smoking jacket collected the package with his false hands and placed it on the writing flap. A Boltonian lass, Kane continued. Been dead best part of a century. Kane paused, nudging the brown paper package a couple of times with his stiff fingers. Same can't be said for these little buggers, he added. Gill opened his mouth to ask what the package contained, but stopped himself, knowing that Kane wouldn't appreciate such an overt display of impatience. 
Fletcher were uh, a recluse, continued Kane in his thick Lancastrian accent. Lost her fiancé to influenza in the late 1890s. Grief-stricken, she turned around to doll-making. She lost plot, withdrew from society to work on her toys in the big old family mill. Ignored all attempts folk made to contact her. Weren't seen in the flesh for nearly five years. Again, Kane prodded the brown bundle on the writing flap. Thereafter, she resurfaced began selling her dolls on the local markets. Some say she travelled as far as Preston to sell them. She were brighter, folk said, aglow with a newfound optimism. And all, she said, owing to the presence of her new friends, the little men of County Bravadus. Here, Gil let out an involuntary exhalation. You with me now? Kane asked. Well, I've heard of, well, whatever they are. What are they, exactly? A tough question to answer. Bear with me. Gil nodded considerately, and once more his eyes were drawn to the brown paper package in front of him, the concealed contents of which were already teasing his imagination. Just know that Fletcher was heartbroken. Kane droned on. Those five long years in isolation must have taken the toll. I can only imagine... Gil muttered, eager for his friend to spill the beans in full, unabridged detail. As is often the case, the keeper of the private collection continued, my old friend Pete is responsible for the acquisition of this little bugger. It's quite a story, believe me. The things he uncovered. Again, Jack Gill simply nodded, allowing Norman Kane the space and freedom required to spin his yarn. Part One The Strange Marks It began with an itching, burning sensation at the bottom of Maria Hegarty's back. Maria lived alone with her five-year-old son, Marcus, in the village of Edgerton, north of Bolton. Marcus's father had been a ghost from the moment of the boy's conception, but Maria had managed perfectly well without him. A loser the likes of Billy Atherton was better off out of her life. Out of her son's life, too. Despite her modest income, and the limited space of her two-up, two-down on Water Street, life was good. The pair ate well, and explored the hills and reservoirs of the West Pennines every Sunday. We don't need anybody else. Maria would often whisper to her little bundle of joy. We have everything we need. Right here. But when young Marcus, too, started with that uh, peculiar itching sensation at the bottom of his back, Maria saw fit to have the two of them examined. Their GP, a pleasant chap by the name of Dr. Watts, diagnosed in each case a spot of pityriasis rosea. A mild steroid cream ought to take care of it, he said, noting as he did so, the curious appearance of the red, scaly patches. In the same position on the backs of both mother and son, just above the sacrum, Watts observed two horizontal lines, resembling the equal sign. Nothing to worry about, he added, patting Marcus's mop of curly blonde hair. 
the inseparable pair returned to Water Street and applied their prescription creams as per the doctor's instructions. That very night, a cold January night, Maria shot up in bed a little after 1 a.m. Her back was tingling furiously. Oh, my God! She puffed, exasperated, mindlessly scratching at the affected area. But in the act of doing so, she disturbed something under the covers. What it was, she couldn't have known at the time. She only knew that it was small, soft, and eager to elude her questing digits. Surprised by the presence of this unwelcome nocturnal visitor, Maria reached for the lamp at the side of her bed. If she hadn't fumbled for so long, knocking a glass of water to the floor in the process, she might have caught a glimpse of the thing that had been sharing her bed just moments before. But as it was, sufficient time had elapsed to permit the thing, whatever it was, to cross the stretch of carpet between the bed and the open bedroom door, and disappear into the darkness of the landing beyond. Instinctively, Maria climbed from the bed, and followed what she perceived to be the pitter-patter of little feet. Along the landing she went, moving towards Marcus's bedroom at the end of the hall. Reaching the bedroom door, she paused at the threshold, breathing a sigh of relief at the sight of her bundle of joy tucked up in bed, just as she'd left him several hours earlier. There, in the dim glow afforded by a street lamp outside, she studied Marcus's surroundings. Nothing appeared to be amiss. The wardrobe doors were closed, the toy boxes under the window were neatly stacked, the shelves by the bed were... Something was amiss. Where was Norman? Norman, as it happens, was a precious possession, a Fletcher doll. Most nights, Marcus would insist on having a companion at bedtime, a friend from the shelf, such as Ephraim the Elephant. Marvin the monster, or Zed the zebra, but never Norman. Norman was an older gent, fragile, valuable, not the kind of stuffed toy a mother wants to see contorted by the overzealous paws of her offspring, after lights out. He was a hand-me-down, originally purchased as a gift for Maria's grandmother in the early 1920s. Fletcher dolls were rare even then. Their creator— the mysterious Margaret Fletcher, was the stuff of legend. She of the mill, they called her, a grieving loner living in complete isolation at Fletcher Mill, in the Bolton suburb of Smithles. To own a Fletcher doll was to belong to an exclusive club. They were unique, every one of them, hand-sewn by she of the mill. They were weird and unorthodox, with flawed, asymmetrical features and disproportionate limbs, so very unconventional at the time. Conservative estimates suggest that Fletcher sold over two hundred figurines after emerging from her spell of solitude in 1902. The majority were sold to families throughout Bolton, with a small number being sold by the shadowy seamstress to families in neighbouring Chorley and Preston. Towards the end of 1904, 
After much success and critical acclaim, Fletcher once again retired from public life, and returned to the silence of the old mill, where it is said she lived out her days in seclusion. And so, seeing Norman missing from his accustomed spot on the shelf between Riley the raccoon and Janet the jackal, filled Maria Hegarty with alarm. The small, sepia-coloured figure with lopsided eyes wasn't sharing the bed with Marcus, nor was he hiding amongst the clutter beside the wardrobe. Silence reigned on Water Street, a silence in which Maria considered the strange rumours and tall tales associated with She of the Mill, the stories that spoke of a lonely witch on the outskirts of town, dabbling in occultism and black magic, working frenetically to bring back her beloved, her late husband-to-be, who had succumbed to infection in the prime of his life. Tales of fires burning in the dead of night, vast plumes of smoke blotting out the moon, all manner of eyewitness reports from those who had been brave enough to wander onto the Fletcher estate, only to hear bizarre voices and tormented cries, dozens, if not hundreds, of utterances belonging to persons unknown. And such reports weren't limited to the years in which Fletcher lived and breathed. After her forlorn death at the mill in the late 1940s, Visitors to the abandoned estate claimed to see the figure of a withered lady standing at its numerous windows, a figure bent in dubious prayer, sightings often accompanied by low whispers belonging to untold numbers of chatterers unseen. Presently, even as Maria mused on the subject, Fletcher Mill stood in isolation and ruin, tempting would-be thrill-seekers with its promise of ghosts and ghouls. Margaret Fletcher's dolls, the little men of County Bravadas, were all that remained of the troubled seamstress, her legacy. Maria heard footsteps again, quick, light. She spun on her heel. Her mouth fell open involuntarily. Marcus, too, must have heard the sudden movement because he woke abruptly, looking up to see his mother standing with her back to him at the bedroom door, her eyes drawn to something at her feet. N-Norman? He mumbled, rubbing his eyes. What's Norman doing up? Maria wanted to speak, wanted to acknowledge her son, but she couldn't form the words, couldn't look away from the thing at her feet. It was Norman, all cute and familiar, but it wasn't Norman. Of its own volition, the figurine was standing upright, and its flat head was bent backwards so as to look up and make eye contact with her. Faintly lit though it was in the hall, Maria could just make out the glaze of its eyes, living eyes, the likes of which she'd never seen before. And its arms, those short, puffy suggestions of appendages, were held out before it, as if in protest. Or, Maria thought, as if it had been caught in the act, an act she hadn't quite the faculties at that moment to contemplate. Mom? Came the puzzled tones of Marcus. It, it's okay, Mark, Maria managed, 
It's just, I dropped Norman. She glanced over her shoulder reassuringly, looked away for the briefest of moments, and heard, as she did so, the softest of tumbles at her feet. Instantly, her searching gaze returned to Norman, and there he was, lying face down on the floor beneath her. She scooped him up, and went for the light switch on the wall outside Marcus's room. Is he all right, Mum? Marcus pleaded, quivering. He's fine, Maria hollered, as she examined the little man under the bright landing light. I'll bring him over in a sec. Whatever she had seen in the shadows had departed. Norman's button eyes were flat and lifeless. His oddly shaped torso was limp and soft. But at the end of his short, puffy arms, Maria saw the slightest hint of discoloration. It looked as though the limbs had been dipped in something dark and red, staining them at the tips and right then returned with a vengeance that itching, burning sensation at the bottom of her back. No, she whispered dismissively, denying the onslaught of strange thoughts infesting her brain. Marcus was drifting off again when Maria approached him. See? she muttered, dangling Norman above his head. All better. The boy smiled briefly, then fell asleep. But Maria wouldn't sleep again for a good while, nor would she be returning Norman to his accustomed spot on the shelf. Instead, she descended the stairs, and went in search of that recent edition of Fortean Weekly she had lying about somewhere in the living room. Norman, the troublesome Fletcher doll, was banished to the safe Maria kept under the stairs. Part Two Over a Cup of Tea. Two days later, Saturday, there came a gentle tapping at Maria Hegarty's door. An enthusiastic Marcus was on hand to answer it, pulling the door open just a crack in order to properly assess the caller. Hello, said the man standing there. You must be Marcus. The boy, bashful all of a sudden, Belying the confident glower stamped across his little face, retreated a couple of steps, and turned to call his mother. Mum? He yelled. The man's here. Moments later, Maria met Marcus by the door, and pulled it open. Laying her eyes on the caller, she said, Mr. Van Melson. Then, motioning for him to enter. Please come in. The gaunt, statuesque figure crossed the threshold, and said, Thank you. Marcus's little eyes remained acutely fixed on the stranger in his midst. He was very protective of his mother. Maria led the P.I. along the length of the small hallway, and into the kitchen at the back of the house. Take a seat, she said, pulling a chair out from under a small circular dining table. Thank you, Van Melsen said again, studying his surroundings. About him, amid the typical household items one associates with a kitchen, the P.I. noted a number of incongruous oddities on the countertops. A tall, red tower painstakingly constructed from plastic bricks, a heavily tarnished plush hippopotamus, and a handful of stuffed toys by the kitchen sink. 
tea? Maria invited, in the act of filling the kettle. Oh, yes, please, Van Melsen said, wringing his hands together excitedly. Meanwhile, the spectacled five-year-old, Marcus, pulled a chair up of his own, and sat directly opposite the stranger, still sporting that staunch glower like a mask of stone. The renowned paranormal investigator simply smiled at the boy as Maria flicked on the kettle and popped a tea bag in a mug bearing the words, Big Boy. As you can see, Maria went on, highlighting the cuddly toys by the sink. We're a little bit paranoid. In response to this, Marcus nodded confidently. And the whereabouts of the item we discussed? Van Melsen asked. It's still in the safe. Maria answered over the wheezing of the kettle. Haven't been near it since. Again, the bespectacled boy endorsed his mother's statement with a firm nod. Good, the P.I. said. Quite abruptly, Marcus, whose gaze had never left Van Melsen, blurted, You dress funny, Marcus, Maria chastised lightly. That's not a very nice way to speak to our guest, is it? Van Melsen grinned, revealing a cavern of white stones. Not to worry, Miss Hegarty. The boy's merely curious. Then, after leaning forward, said to Marcus, Aren't you, son? Marcus nodded, and for the first time let slip his mask of stone, beneath which he chuckled. He's more than just curious, Maria stated, shaking her head. I dress for duty, the P.I. stated ruffling the collar of his overcoat. The five-year-old, nonplussed by the words of the stranger, simply gazed at him, mouth agape. Milk and sugar? Maria asked, pouring hot water into the mug. No, thank you, the P.I. replied. Maria placed the big boy mug in front of Van Melsen and joined him and Marcus at the dining table. So tell me, the P.I. began. Is there a history of strangeness associated with the toy in question? Not that I'm aware of, said Maria. My grandma was the first to own it. She passed it on to my mum. Mum passed it on to me. I passed it on to Marcus. I mean, we've all heard the stories going round about Margaret Fletcher, but that's just what they are, stories. Van Melsen nodded respectfully. The boy imitated him. I can appreciate that, the P.I. said. Fletcher dolls are very rare these days. The investigator took a sip of tea from the mug in front of him. Marcus watched intently. There was a case in the seventies, Van Melsen continued, involving a Fletcher doll and a young boy. Maria immediately looked to Marcus. Go and play in the living room for a bit, she instructed. This conversation is for grown-ups. Marcus Courteous and obedient, rose from the table and scurried off into the living room. He's good like that, Maria said. You were saying? The Howards were the family in question. Mother and son, just like you and Marcus. The two of them lived in Chorley, in a modest terraced house, not too dissimilar to the place you have here. The unmistakable sound of a loud television coming to life startled the pair, shortly followed by a rapid decrease in volume, and a shrill yell along the lines of, Sorry, Mom! Maria shook her head dismissively. Well, 
the P.I. resumed. The boy, James, about the same age as Marcus, as it happens, began to complain about a spot of pain he was experiencing at the bottom of his back. His mother, Nigella, took a look and saw two horizontal marks above the sacrum, precisely the same as the marks the two of you are now bearing. Maria frowned. Anyway, Van Melsen went on, to cut a long story short, Nigella and James, after a number of fruitless consultations with doctors and dermatologists, became convinced that the marks were being caused by something supernatural, a nocturnally active doll, a Fletcher doll by the name of Jacob. The doll had been in the family for years, passed down from generation to generation, just like Norman, with no prior accounts of strangeness ever being described by previous owners. Here, Van Melsen paused to take a sip of tea. What happened in the end? Maria quizzed impatiently. Nigella attempted to destroy the doll, threw it out, cut it up with scissors, buried it, all to no avail. In the end, a third party stepped forward to claim it, and took Jacob away. Third party? Van Melsen shrugged his shoulders, saying, The Howards refused to say. Strange, don't you think? Maria nodded. There's a commonality, though, the investigator continued. The passing of the toys from mother to son. Previous owners in the Howard family, just like the previous owners in your family, were all female. It seems that the strangeness begins when the dolls are passed to the gents. Hey! Maria abruptly blurted, having spotted a small face peeking into the kitchen from the adjacent room. How long have you been standing there? Not long. Marcus droned innocently. Come here. Maria instructed, inviting the little chap back to the table. More than just curious indeed, the P.I. reiterated, smiling at the boy, as he resumed his position opposite him. So where do we stand with Norman? Maria asked, her voice tinged with sadness. Do we have to? Then, lowering her voice to protect Marcus. Give him away? Absolutely not, Van Melsen declared, grinning at the spectacled boy as he said it. But it may be wise for Norman to spend a few days with me. Call it, uh, therapy, if you like. Therapy? Maria begged. I have a few errands to run in order to get a better idea of what it is we're up against here. As we discussed over the telephone, the little men of County Bravadus are much more than a legion of stuffed toys. Legion? Marcus blurted. Ah, uh, the P.I. began, searching for an age-appropriate definition. It means uh, many, a lot, like that pile of toys you've got there by the sink. Marcus turned his head and chuckled. I suppose we'd better go get him, Maria uttered, wincing. Van Melsen nodded, taking one final sip from the big boy mug in front of him. As for you, Maria started, eyeballing Marcus. Stay there. The boy nodded, grinning guiltily. In a matter of seconds, the diminutive twenty-eight-year-old, with the renowned P.I. crouching by, 
was unlocking the small safe in the cupboard under the stairs. He's not going to jump out at me, is he? Maria quizzed, looking to the man beside her for reassurance. Doubtful, Van Melsen managed, which was somehow worse to Maria's ears than if he hadn't said anything at all. Much to their mutual relief, though, Norman was motionless when Maria opened the door to the mini-vault. A pair of uneven, monochrome eyes stared out from the darkness of the safe, but not a jot of life animated them. "'And breathe,' moaned Maria, reaching into the vault to collect him. The P.I. looked at the doll with hard, penetrating eyes. He'd encountered living objects before, an ensouled vase, a crawling mannequin hand, but never a toy, never a doll. Norman was a curious creation, the product of an unsettled mind, a mind the investigator was keen to get a better understanding of. For the origin of this figurine's alleged life was assuredly associated with Margaret Fletcher, the Victorian doll-maker and recluse, often discussed in occult circles, the distraught loner driven to strange compulsions in the disquieting halls of an isolated mill. Of all things outré, Fletcher ranked highly. But better not to say too much to Miss Hegarty, better to refrain from exposing little Marcus's imagination to the notion of dimensional interlopers, creatures hell-bent on knowing the feel of human skin atop their otherworldly forms. And better, much better, than to infer that those curious marks on their backs were the net result of those creatures' attempts to acquire that which lies beneath the skin— that ever-so-desirable semi-solid tissue found deep in the bones. "'Never fear, Miss Hegarty,' Van Melsen said. "'I'll have Norman back with you in no time.' It felt like a hollow promise, but the investigator was determined to make good on it. If not for Maria, then for the five-year-old boy, who once again had snuck up behind them to get a better look at what was happening— under the stairs. "'I'm more than just curious,' Marcus babbled, imitating the renowned paranormal investigator. Part 3. A Bit of Introspection And so it was that Van Melsen took his leave and made his way to the bus stop on Blackburn Road. After lighting a cigarette, he stood there in the waning light of the brisk January afternoon, and briefly studied the toy known to the Hegartys as Norman, in particular the dark bloodstains at the ends of its little, bulbous arms. "'What have you been up to?' he whispered, his gaze locked on Norman's button eyes. The bus appeared on the horizon, so the investigator tucked the doll into his satchel, and stuck his arm out. Boarding the vehicle, Van Melsen flashed his return ticket at the driver, and proceeded to procure a seat for himself near the front. Though he'd paid to return to Bolton Town Centre, the investigator alighted at Astley Bridge, from where, on foot, he ascended a mile or so along Belmont Road in the direction of Horrocks Fold, 
in order to get a glimpse of Fletcher Mill. According to a book he'd perused on the train over from York, the elevated position just beyond the hamlet of Horrocks Fold provided a convenient vantage point from which to view the sizable expanse of land comprising the Fletcher estate. Twilight was upon the investigator when he reached the sought-after location. Looking southwest, he saw a broad stretch of wild pasture, sweeping towards an area of dense woodland. The forest, he knew, belonged to the Fletcher estate. Nestled within the trees, at a distance of two or three miles from his position on Belmont Road, Van Melsen was all but certain he could make out the suggestion of stone amongst the towering trees, red brick walls, and the occasional glimmer of glass. "'I see you,' the P.I. breathed. Lighting another cigarette, Van Melsen puffed careless clouds of smoke into the chill air about him. The swirls danced above him, seeking the ether, like spirits freed from bondage. The imagery wasn't lost on the investigator. It was all too prescient. Nodding to himself, he turned and headed back in the direction of Astley Bridge. He'd caught a glimpse of his ultimate destination, and now that he knew where he was heading, it was important to prepare himself for what was to follow. What was that, exactly? Deciding against waiting for another bus, the P.I. continued along Blackburn Road in a southerly direction, until he found himself back in the market town of Bolton. He'd booked himself into a cheap hotel on Nelson Square, an unpretentious place by the name of The Old Mule. He'd been on his feet for almost two hours by the time he dropped into the armchair in his modest suite, but not before flicking on the kettle and popping a tea-bag in a plain white mug. Accompanied by the wheezing of the kettle, Van Melsen withdrew Norman from his satchel, and placed him on the small table in front of him. Again, he ogled the weird doll, willing it to come to life, to demonstrate some kind of sentience, an ability to communicate. "'I imagine you have all the answers I seek,' he declared. "'But you're not going to provide them, are you?' Norman, propped up against an ugly decorative jug, remained entirely immobile. If the doll had been active in the night, wandering from bed to bed with an insidious agenda, there were certainly no signs of that life now. The kettle clicked off, and Van Melsen poured boiling hot water into the cup. What the P.I. knew of Fletcher dolls, he'd read in books heard in conversations with other occult investigators. On a number of occasions, it had been suggested by some that the lady at the centre of it all hadn't been entirely alone at the mill between the years of 1897 and 1902. Those with a particular interest in the Fletcher case often referred to a visitor, the comings and goings of a stranger during the period in question a lone figure in grey, stalking through the pasturelands at night, clutching a dark staff, an odd guest for a grieving recluse to receive. And it was the description of this figure in grey that caught Van Melsen's interest when he first heard it some years earlier. Certain rare tomes, Roger Arkwright's Psychal being one of them, 
detail the strange account of one Bernard Hereford of Lincoln, an individual who claimed to have inadvertently conjured such a figure following the passing of his wife in the late 1870s. The summoned, a reaper of a character if ever there was one, allegedly offered to reanimate Hereford's wife in exchange for certain objects it referred to as vessels. The account goes on to outline the deal the Lincolner made with the figure in grey. He pledged a pair of oil paintings, valuable family portraits he would later steal from a nearby manor house. This pleased the summoned. Upon receipt of the paintings, the figure in grey, dark staff in hand, fulfilled its end of the bargain, and reanimated the corpse of Angela Hereford. But like the monkey's paw, there's always a catch, isn't there? Angela was revived all right, but not as she had been before the violent attack that killed her. She came back as she had appeared after the attack, bloodied and mangled by the mob that beat and robbed her on the murky city streets. Her jaw was broken, her larynx crushed. Couldn't speak, could only sob, gurgling blood. Bernard tried to put his wife out of her misery. Suffocation, incineration, none of it worked. His action simply exacerbated her condition, and their suffering continued. The Lincolner did his darndest to conjure the figure in grey once more, to plead with it to reverse the resurrection and rid him of his terrible burden. But his attempts to make contact with the elusive figure were unsuccessful. In the case of Margaret Fletcher, Van Melson mused in the safety of his room at the old mule, could it be that she called to the figure in grey, pleaded with the necromancer to reanimate her betrothed? Perhaps they struck a deal, the life of Alfred Marsh, in exchange for certain objects, vessels. Had the grieving recluse pledged a number of dolls, the so-called little men of County Bravadas? The P.I. took a long sip of tea, then glared at Norman. "'What are you?' he asked, as though the doll had heard his thoughts, had considered the consequences of his speculations. But Norman had no response for him. No bother. Van Melsen felt sure the answers he sought would be procured on the morrow in the residential district of Lostock. Part 4. A Word with a Howard The renowned P.I. slept rather well in his modest suite at the old mule, owing in part to the comfort of the king-size bed, but mainly to the fact that Norman, the bashful Fletcher doll, had spent the night locked in the wardrobe. Prior to his arrival in the northwest, the investigator had done a spot of research— Though some perfunctory knowledge of Margaret Fletcher and the little men of County Bravadas existed in the depths of his mind, he'd had to go a little further in order to uncover something of potential use. One of these things was the case of the Howards, the Chorley-based family who had once owned a Fletcher doll, later handing it to a mysterious third party back in the seventies. Perhaps a member of the family would be able to tell him something about what he was up against. And so, after cashing in a favour, 
was armed with Nigella Howard's home address. The investigator showered, changed, and set out for the day, leaving little Norman where he was for the time being. He took a train out of Bolton, and alighted in Lostock, just a stone's throw from Nigella Howard's bungalow on Regent Road. Naturally, Van Melson had called ahead, insisting that he meet with her out of concern for a family in a very similar situation to the one she had once faced. And so, the aging matriarch of the family had begrudgingly agreed to meet him, and presently, there he was, approaching the door, the last remnants of a cheap cigarette burning the tips of his fingers. He docked the offending article, and returned it to the safety of the carton, prior to knocking on the door. When the door swung open, Van Melsen found himself in the presence of a slender lady in her mid to late sixties, grey-haired and standing at least six foot tall. There was a look in her eye, a look that suggested she wasn't entirely pleased to see him. Inviting the investigator inside, Nigella Howard escorted her guest to a spacious dining-room at the back of the house, where she offered him, much to his delight, a cup of piping hot tea. "'Thank you for agreeing to see me,' the P.I. said, as he took a seat at the dining-table. The tall lady simply nodded, as she went about her drink preparation. "'Lovely place you have here,' Van Melsen offered, realizing instantly that his attempt at small talk was poor, to say the least. He wasn't one for casual conversation, but for some reason or other, in the company of this uh, frosty lady, he felt the need to bolster her confidence in him. "'Thanks,' she returned, forcing a smile. A period of silence followed, in which Van Melsen perused the photographs adorning the wall beside him, mother and son, in most instances, in various locations. The woods, the beach, a European city. So, Nigella began as she joined the P.I. at the table, placing a cup in front of him. What do you want to know? Well, Van Melsen began, I know all about your experiences with Jacob. The case is very well documented. I'd all sorts at my door back then, the lady blurted. Couldn't get rid of them. The investigator nodded respectfully. Well, it'll be the same for the Hegartys, if I'm unable to take care of this uh, quietly. And he gave Nigella a suggestive look, a look intended to penetrate her cool exterior. Go on, Nigella urged, rolling her eyes. What isn't well documented, Van Melsen continued, is the identity of the individual who took your Fletcher doll away. At this, a strange expression washed over the grey-haired lady's face. It was as though she'd been confronted with a memory that had lain dormant for many years. An unpleasant memory, the kind of memory one buries deeply. Can you tell me about this person? the P.I. asked. With a heavy sigh, Nigella said, He never offered his name. He just turned up at the door one day. My boy James answered the door, and what he saw there scared the living daylights out of him. He looked like he'd seen a ghost, or worse. Nigella paused and took a deep breath. In your own time, 
the patient PI reassured. He said something along the lines of, there's someone at the door. I was already riled up. The look on his face was frightening. I had no idea what to expect. I sent him up to his room and went to deal with the caller. Again, Nigella paused momentarily. It was dark, so I didn't get the best of looks at him. To tell you the truth, I could smell him before I saw him. The odour coming off him was dreadful. I mean, I've never smelt anything like it before or since. Pure death. Do you know that smell, Mr Van Melson? As a matter of fact, yes, Van Melson stated, sipping his tea. And please, call me Peter. Nigella nodded. Standing there, I had to resist the temptation to turn the exterior lights on. Something told me not to. The dark silhouette was bad enough as it was. It was definitely a man, no doubt about that. He was tall and heavy-set, breathing heavily. Hello? I asked, doing everything I could not to heave at the smell emanating from him. Can I help you? There was a pause before he responded. A brief moment where he seemed to adjust his jaw or something. God, it was awful. It's okay, Miss Howard. Take your time. Then he said, I can help you. His voice was low and guttural, all raspy and full of fluid. A horrible voice by all accounts. I was really worried by this point. My fight-or-flight response was in full flow. I was ready to either slam the door in his face or grab something to hand like an umbrella and go after him like an angry bull. I heard James on the stairs behind me. I wanted to yell at him to go back to his room, but I couldn't take my eyes off the man at the door. Couldn't bring myself to do much of anything except stand there, anticipating God only knows what. Again, the grey-haired lady, who was rather flushed in the face by this point, took a deep breath and calmed herself before continuing. Having said nothing at all in response to the man's offer of help, he barked, Give me the doll. I knew he was referring to Jacob. He must have heard about it in the local rag, or in one of the weird magazines that were publishing articles about it. By this point, my eyes had properly adjusted to the gloom outside, and I could just about make out his face. A face like a corpse. That's the only way I can describe it. Me and James had recently watched The Amiga Man. God, did that man at the door look like one of those mutants from that film. Afterwards, James told me he'd thought the same thing, which was why he'd been so terrified to begin with. Van Melsen sipped his tea, nodding politely. The lady in his midst had got herself into a right state reiterating her strange encounter, but the investigator found her tale very interesting indeed, and very telling. And then, he prompted. I knew what I had to do. She continued abruptly, all her words running together. It was obvious. You have to remember, Peter. And she reached out and took hold of the P.I.'s hand as she said this. Me and James, we'd already been through the mill with Jacob. We'd cut him up with scissors— flushed him down the toilet, even posted him to random addresses overseas. But there was no getting rid of him. The only way we slept at night was knowing that the little monster was locked up in a steel container. And even then, we felt that it wouldn't hold him. Couldn't hold him. That eventually, he'd find a way out, just like he'd managed to overcome those other challenges. 
dismemberment, burial, etc. It was odd. I just knew that the only thing to do was to hand Jacob over to this man at the door. This zombie-like thing that, after all we'd been through, really wasn't all that shocking to encounter. Surreal, yeah, but at the time, not particularly outrageous. I mean, after catching a doll in the act of burrowing into your son's spine, anything's possible, isn't it? So, you just handed Jacob over? Absolutely. Right there and then, I went to the container, unlocked it, fished the little monster out, and handed it to him. Seemed so obvious at the time. Like the only thing I could do. Handed Jacob over, and off the man went. Trudged down the road, and was gone. The smell, though. God, that lingered for days. Again, Van Melsen nodded knowingly, smiling supportively. Can you tell me anything else about the man's appearance? Lines appeared on Nigella's brow as she fought to visualise the person she'd seen only once and very fleetingly over thirty years ago. Like I said, he was a large man, stocky, tall and bald. His voice, although it was raspy and difficult to understand, it definitely belonged to a northerner, certainly a local chap, possibly a Boltoner. What was he wearing? The grey-haired lady shook her head. Now you're asking, she said dismissively. Pity James isn't around. He got a decent look at him too. And she paused, deep in thought, before adding, I only know that his clothes were threadbare, rotten, quite like the man wearing them. Might have been a suit once. I just can't remember. I understand, Van Melsen said, patting the hand that was still resting atop his on the table. If that's all you can remember, that's good enough for me. Who was he? Nigella asked, fully aware that the man in her company probably wouldn't have the vaguest idea. The P.I. shrugged his shoulders, saying, That's the question, isn't it? Cases such as this are like jigsaw puzzles. Pieces are strewn about haphazardly, some of which might very well be missing. And even when they're all accounted for, you're still to face the task of putting them together. I've tried not to think about it too much over the years, Nigella said. James would have a fit if he knew I was talking to somebody about it again. It's for the greater good, the P.I. stated. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. With those words, Van Melsen downed the remainder of his tea and climbed to his feet. I shan't take up any more of your time, Miss Howard. Please, Nigella said, echoing the investigator's earlier invitation. Call me Nigella. Thank you, Nigella. You've been most helpful. The grey-haired lady, too, climbed to her feet and followed the P.I. to the door. Will you let me know how it turns out? She asked. Absolutely, the investigator said affirmatively. And with that, he stepped out into the cold, lighting a cigarette impatiently as he trod the length of Regent Road. It was back to Bolton for Van Melsen. He had some supplies to collect for a sojourn on the morrow, a trip up to Horrocks Fold, from where he would descend onto the Fletcher estate in search of a long-lived and decomposing man. 
Nigella looked on as the stranger went, paid close attention to the way in which the towering, seemingly otherworldly figure walked, each long stride full of conviction. Here was a man who might just be able to put an end to the long years of haunted nights, the interminable dreams of tiny critters at the bottom of her bed, little men hell-bent on escorting her to a world beyond this one, a homeworld the likes of which, alas, from Chorley, could only ever glimpse in nightmares. Part 5 Fletcher Mill A blanket of snow covered Nelson Square when Van Melson awoke the following morning. He enjoyed a cigarette by the window, puffing clouds of smoke into the frosty air. Several passers-by glanced up at him. One even saluted him, tipping a flat cap. Van Melson returned the gesture, raising a mug in kind. Situated at the east end of the square, overlooking Bradshergate, the imposing statue of Nelson looked on in silence, indifferent to the affairs of the investigator. All in all, it was a peaceful morning, retaining precisely the kind of calm the P.I. required in order to prepare himself for the task ahead. Returning to the table by the window, Van Melson opened his journal and flicked to a page-headed Fletcher. He studied his notes intently, everything he'd learned about Margaret Fletcher and her bothersome creations. Prior to the death of her fiancé, she'd been a bright and confident lady, a superlative seamstress, and a young heiress, fiercely dedicated to the restoration of the prosperous family cotton mill. But the premature passing of Alfred Marsh had been too much for the blossoming lady. Her future, she was often heard to remark, was secure in Alfie's hands. Her loss forced her into solitude, and towards other, darker pursuits. Here, the P.I. re-read his notes concerning the eyewitness reports of those who claimed to have observed the comings and goings of the figure in grey. "'How often did he come to you?' Van Melson muttered, his mind awash with images of this otherworldly character trudging through the pasturelands of the Fletcher estate. The notes went on to describe Margaret's reappearance, her return to her former self, during which she went out into the world and sold her curious dolls. Mary was how those who traded with her described her, a woman reborn, light-hearted, filled with a zest for life. But it was a short-lived revival. Van Melson's notes addressed her second withdrawal from public life, the period of seclusion that would last through to her death, and all through that period and beyond, thrill-seekers would wander onto the Fletcher estate in the hopes of catching a fleeting glimpse of the legendary lady, in life or death. And there were other jottings in the P.I.'s journal, contemporaneous reports of missing children in the metropolitan borough of Bolton, children who, prior to their disappearances, had complained of sores in the lower back, wounds generally believed to be the result of rodent infestations. <laughs> How Van Melson scoffed at that! The investigator's rough notes 
coupled with several passages copied from Roger Arkwright's psych cull concerning the little-known case of Bernard Hereford of Lincoln, were enough to arm Van Melsen with everything he needed to pay a visit to Fletcher Mill, to see for himself what terrible secrets were lurking within its dilapidated halls. Next to the journal on the table were a number of curious items, each of which the P.I. proceeded to place in his satchel. A torch, a lump of charcoal, a church candle, and a plastic bag containing a small quantity of yellow powder. There was only one other thing to collect, and its name was Norman. Van Melsen approached the wardrobe. With great care, he turned the big old key, pulled the doors open, and gazed into its shadowy heart. The Fletcher doll was just sitting there, precisely where the P.I. had left him the day before. There wasn't the slightest hint of life in his stiff, inorganic body. "'Out you come,' Van Melsen whispered, dispelling any evil intent by addressing the doll aloud. Into the satchel Norman went, and out of the old mule the investigator strode, in quest of a bus that would take him once more to Astley Bridge. It was a brief bus ride that delivered Van Melsen to the bottom of Belmont Road, which was fortunate, given that the walk ahead would be tumultuous, to say the least. The snow had fallen heavier upon the higher ground of Astley Bridge, and, as the P.I. continued in the direction of Horrocks Fold, he was thankful he'd taken the decision to don his sturdiest winter boots. When, after some thirty minutes of slogging, he was in a position to view the Fletcher estate from the road, he immediately veered from the footpath and descended into the pastureland. An expansive, white carpet ushered him towards the woods that shielded the sought-after mill from the world at large. It was tough going, but Van Melsen was resolute. Besides, this wasn't the first time he traversed difficult terrain in order to attain a goal, nor would it be the last. As the old motto went, he simply had to put one foot in front of the other. And so he did, trudging through the heavy snow, focused on the brick façade that, as he neared it, continued to offer tantalizing glimpses of its hidden enormity. The snowy plain was silent as the grave, as the P.I. traversed it. The sun was unable to greet him, dimmed as it was by a thick layer of purplish cloud that foretold of a blizzard yet to come. Eventually, the P.I. attained the tree-line. Stepping into the shade of the woods, Van Melsen was offered respite from the snow-covered grass, and there, not more than a hundred yards ahead of him, lurked Fletcher Mill, like a Siberian tiger waiting to pounce. Van Melsen recalled the stories, the numerous articles published by Fortian Weekly, and the short-lived Journal of the Unexplained, the collected accounts of dozens of visitors to the mill, reports of strange lights and unearthly sounds and the tales of those who had visited the estate over a century ago, those who had witnessed the figuring grey, a wizard or warlock, some had said it was, marching through the woods, elaborate staff in hand. The atmosphere of the place was overwhelming, 
a realm imbued with strangeness. Its reputation was well deserved. And it was with thoughts of its reputation that the renowned P.I. emerged from the woods and found himself before Fletcher Mill in all its glory. The building was typical of an early nineteenth-century cotton mill, though substantially smaller than others built throughout the area during the period. It was an imposing, oblong affair, three stories tall, with a flat roof. But it was the condition of the building that caught Van Melsen off guard. It looked as though it was ready to collapse, to return to the ground from whence it had sprung. The red-brick façade was scorched in places. Windows were shattered and jagged, allowing Mother Nature to establish a foothold within. Large swathes of creeping ivy slithered up and down the building, in and out of the dark apertures, like great limbs pulling at the mill, determined to separate bricks from mortar. The P.I. paused in his tracks, awestruck. He allowed the atmosphere of the place to seep into his bones, to allow it a taste of him, to assess him. It was important in situations such as this, for Van Melsen to make it clear that though he was awed, anxious even, he was positively not afraid. He'd seen fear result in the undoing of many an investigator over the years, eager detectives who'd ventured too far, too soon. A dark portal met his gaze, a gaping hole where once a set of double doors might have been. It beckoned to him. Out came the cigarettes, and there, in the shadow of Fletcher Mill, he lit one in defiance. He'd smoke at least two before venturing inside. It was the smell that came to greet him as he crossed the threshold. The smell of all things old and abandoned, mould and humidity, a festering odour further intensified by the familiar stench of decay. The dark space into which the P.I. had stepped was gloomy and claustrophobic. A small, unassuming grey hall revealed a number of doors leading off into further uncertainty. Van Melsen was about to withdraw his torch— but noticed, as he reached into his satchel to collect it, a faint glow emanating from one of the portals ahead of him. Slowly but surely, his eyes began to adapt to the gloom, aided in part by the light streaming in from the entryway behind him. The dozen or so entrances ahead were in various states of disrepair. Old wooden doors hung from rusty hinges, worm-eaten and riddled with moss, others lacking doors entirely. The portal from which the dim glow emanated was the only one to which a complete door still belonged, and it was slightly ajar, allowing the soft light to spill into the grey hall, to crawl along the old stone floor, fingering Van Melsen's winter boots. The investigator approached the undesirable door, and gave it a tentative shove. It squeaked open on its rusty hinges, announcing his arrival to all who might dwell beyond. Stepping into a narrow corridor, Van Melsen observed a smattering of sporadic candles that served to illuminate the passageway, lit by persons unknown. 
He followed the flickering flames with conviction, like a thief in the night, light on his feet. Eventually, the investigator reached a T-junction. For no reason in particular, he took the passage to his left, and pressed forward until he found himself at the foot of an ascending staircase. Grey steps soared into uncertain gloom above. Pulling out his torch, Van Melsen commenced the inevitable climb. Other than the soft sound of his footfalls on the cold stone steps, the mill was eerily silent. The recent snowfall without served only to amplify that silence. Silence within, silence without. The P.I. felt as though he were walking below the surface of the earth, entirely disconnected from the rattle and hum of the busy world above. But he wasn't alone in the mill. The raising of the hairs at the base of his neck reminded him of the fact, as he crested the staircase, followed another desolate corridor, and emerged within the very heart of the mill, a vast, open space. It was the spinning-room, filled floor-to-ceiling with archaic looms and bewildering machinery, benches and workstations, overhead lighting and exposed rafters, all lit by the diffuse glow streaming in from dozens of broken windows. In the centre of the spinning-room, incongruous with the rest of the space, was a hut of sorts, a dwelling built of rough-cut timber. Van Melsen negotiated the rows of machinery in the direction of the shack. Unnatural light spilled from the hut's shuttered windows. A low hum was faintly audible. The P.I. was taken aback by the strange abode. It was a single-story construction, surrounded by redundant spinning machines serving as buttresses. An A-frame roof finished the structure, held in place by a number of steel poles suspended from the rafters above. This, quite possibly, was where Margaret Fletcher had once lived. How bizarre it was! How surreal! Why it was the grieving lady had chosen to go into hiding at the mill following Alfred Marsh's demise, no one could ever say, nor did any records exist pertaining to the mill's operational history prior to her solitude. Such records, it was rumoured, were kept by Fletcher at the mill, hidden in one of its many rooms, secreted away in a hidden drawer, to be uncovered some day by a lucky looter, perhaps. But locals generally shunned the place. Those who did, on occasion, wander onto the estate, would only do so for kicks, and even then, they knew better than to actually enter the mill, to step into the figurative mouth of the monster. Whatever Fletcher's strange motivations, there in the cold dark mill she had lived, in secret, communing with God knows what, sewing dolls in that little shack in the spinning-room, and all in a desperate effort to bring back the love of her life, her husband-to-be, Alfred Marsh. Van Melsen located the door to the little hut, this too made of rough-cut timber, and, with understandable consternation, pulled it open. Part Six The Figure Eight 
The inside of the shack was not at all what Van Melsen was expecting to see. The interior, quite roomy, was very neatly laid out. No windows permitted light to enter, but a number of glowing lanterns illuminated the space sufficiently. Several walls were filled with bookshelves, housing a variety of hardback curiosities. The wall directly opposite the door was host to a single bed and a large workbench, on top of which sat assorted items, including moth-eaten bowls of twine, needles and thread, all manner of sewing paraphernalia. It might have been an echo, a superimposed vision of sorts, but there amongst the clutter, seen as though through a roll of faded film, Van Melsen saw a figure by the workbench, just an outline. A tall lady, a pair of large scissors in one hand, trimming fabric into small, recognizable shapes. Fletcher dolls. The apparition worked with great care and infinite patience, laying the pieces of fabric flat on the workbench before her, selecting suitably shaped buttons for the eyes, and interesting offcuts of fabric to fulfill the function of mouths, arms, legs, and in some instances, little ears. This figure was none other than Margaret Fletcher, her steely determination penetrating the long decades in order to be glimpsed again by the eyes of he who had come to put an end to the fruits of her tireless labour. Driven by that unerring desire to see her late betrothed again, her work was precise, flawless. What the purpose of the little vessels were, the dreadful reality of what might infest them, was assuredly a point the seamstress had locked away in the back of her mind. But wait, did the ghostly image glance in Van Melsen's direction? See him, perhaps? The glimpse was too fleeting to know for sure. The vision of Margaret Fletcher promptly faded. Presently, the investigator observed something altogether corporeal in his midst. There, in the centre of the windowless room, directly beneath a powerful kerosene lantern, sat a strange-looking man in a sepia-coloured suit. The man sat cross-legged on a finely woven rug. Van Melsen immediately observed that a symbol of some kind was engraved in the wooden slats beneath the rug— a partially obscured symbol he felt he'd need to get a better look at, later. The P.I. stepped into the shack proper. The man on the rug, a young-looking gentleman with jet-black hair and a clean complexion, appeared to be asleep. But, as the investigator approached the figure, mindful of the creaking floorboards beneath his feet, he saw that the individual was lifeless. The man was completely motionless— and didn't look to be breathing. And then Van Melsen saw it. Clutched in the hands of the man on the rug was a small coin purse of sorts, a tiny sack, the contents of which appeared to be wriggling within. Approximately the size of Norman, the troublesome Fletcher doll that was at that very moment curled up in Van Melsen's satchel, the investigator quickly concluded— that the object in the sack was most likely the Howard's doll, Jacob, and that the character before him was, just as he'd anticipated, 
the revivified fiancé, Alfred Marsh. Then Van Melsen sensed movement by his hip. The contents of his satchel, too, were wriggling. Norman, it seemed, was awake. Cautiously, the investigator opened the bag, and sure enough, there was Norman, writhing back and forth like a caged animal. The P.I. gasped, as quite suddenly the little man leapt from the confines of the satchel, and took off running in the direction of the open door. It was quite a sight to see, not only because of the uncanny nature of the fabric creature, but because of the way in which it moved. No longer did it resemble a stuffed toy. It was in possession of human-like qualities, nimble arms and flexible legs. As Van Melsen watched it go, Norman appeared to be surrounded by a curious radiance, like a veil of mist in the shape of something weird and diminutive. And as it went, the part that looked like Norman faded away entirely, leaving nothing but the suggestion of a short, vaporous figure, fleeing with purpose. "'Close the door,' came a voice from the middle of the room. Immediately, Van Melsen turned and stared into the open eyes of the motionless man on the rug. "'Close the door,' the man repeated. The investigator did as he was instructed. "'Bolt it,' came the words of the man again. Without hesitation, Van Melsen did exactly that. "'What's going on here?' he asked, returning to face the strange man. "'They're coming.' the man said, his low voice haunting in the artificial light of the hut. "'Who are they?' "'I think you know,' the man continued, motioning towards the wriggling sack in his lap. Then sounds were heard without. The pitter-patter of steps, dozens of pairs of little feet rushing back and forth, and—whispering—yes, low voices, plotting, scheming. "'Alfred Marsh?' Van Melsen addressed the young man before him. "'Aye,' the man said, nodding. "'What do they want?' the investigator begged, somewhat distracted by the din out in the spinning-room. "'New blood,' Alfred said, his eyes widening. "'It's been a long while since they've tasted new blood.' "'I need to call him,' Van Melsen stated, the inference in his voice telling the man on the rug everything he needed to know. "'He won't help you,' Alfred said. "'You've nothing to offer him. What about new blood?' the P.I. barked with conviction. "'You'd offer yourself?' "'Yes.' Alfred Marsh shook his pale head. "'They'll get to you first, he added, indicating those outside. The sounds without intensified— an army was forming, a veritable swarm of uncanny little men. But Van Melsen had come prepared. He was always prepared. He dropped to the floor in front of the man on the rug, and reached into his satchel. "'I'm a man of means,' he said, withdrawing the lump of charcoal, the thick church candle, and the bag of yellow powder. With the charcoal— he hastily drew a large figure eight on the wooden panels beneath him. Into the first circle he placed the candle, and lit it with a hastily struck match. Then 
he positioned himself in the centre of the second of the two circles, and opened the plastic bag. Carefully, as Alfred Marsh looked on fascinatedly, the P.I. took a pinch of the yellow stuff and placed it on his tongue. He sat there for a moment, listening to the racket outside, allowing the weird powder to dissolve in his mouth. Then, swallowing the substance, he closed his eyes. The man in Van Melsen's midst watched him eagerly. Then, when his patience exhausted itself, he simply blurted, "'You're a sorcerer!' "'Not quite,' the investigator immediately denied. "'What do you intend to do?' Alfred asked. "'With your help, I intend to summon him.' "'With my help?' "'Yes. What do you need me to do?' I need you to remember. Remember? Yes. The investigator gazed at the locked door, ever conscious of the mounting force without. That spot, he said, right there where you're sitting, from that very spot, Margaret Fletcher strove to make contact with the figure in grey. For almost five years she toiled, but in the end she succeeded, summoned him, made a deal with him. Alfred Marsh remained motionless, silent. In exchange for your resurrection, she promised him vessels, hundreds of inanimate vessels through which his kin might live and feed. And live and feed they did, moving from home to home, awaiting the right set of inexplicable circumstances to pounce on their keepers. But she changed her tune, didn't she, Alfred? Changed her tune when she realized that your resurrection came with certain— Restrictions? The young man, still and unbreathing, nodded his pale head. It's true, he declared. The moment I step out of the spinning room, I begin to deteriorate. I can survive a couple of days out there, burly. I must return to this very spot atop the symbol, to be restored. Such is the curse of the deal, Van Melsen said. It's happened— many times before. But we must put an end to it, today. B by sacrificing yourself? Alfred begged. Yes. By now, the sounds without were indicative of a frenzy. The little men of County Bravadas were just outside, whispering amongst themselves, sniffing the air. Tiny hands began to interfere with the door handle, testing it to begin with then rattling it with fervour. "'I need you to remember, Alfred,' Van Melsen reiterated. "'Margaret summoned him a second time, didn't she? Displeased with the arrangement, she called him back, eager to renegotiate the terms of the deal.' The young man nodded. "'I need his name, Alfred. If we're to pull this off, I need you to remember the name she used to summon him.' The pale man in the sepia suit shook his head vehemently, searching the reanimated cells of his brain for a memory—the memory of that terrible moment in which his desperate wife-to-be called out to the mysterious figure in grey, called out in the name of her beloved. "'Tetarox!' the young man abruptly yelled. "'Tetarox is his name!' Van Melsen was unfamiliar with the name— couldn't place it, though the figure in grey had been referenced many times, most notably in Arkwright's Psychul, it had never been referred to by name. Tetarox, 
the investigator whispered under his breath. The utterance of the name seemed to momentarily quieten the din without. But Van Melsen had no time to waste, and so he centred himself, and focused on the flickering candle opposite him. The figure-eight ritual was a tried-and-tested conjurer's summons, at least so the P.I. had read. The method he was adopting had been plainly outlined in Psy Cull, with some additional parameters garnered from Sebastian Fisher's dreams and visions. With Alfred Marsh looking on, the small sack still writhing in his lap, and the increasing discord of the little men without, Van Melsen reached into the opposite circle, and carefully retrieved the candle. After doing so, he closed his eyes, and began to chant the name of the figure in grey over and over again, supplementing the chant with a string of terms that his immediate company remembered hearing once or twice before, many moons ago. Tetarox, Tetarox, went the murmurings of the P.I. Tetarox, Tetarox, Exorior, Exorior. Again, the cacophony outside was fleetingly hushed by these words. A moment of quiet, during which a distinct change of atmosphere was detected by the little men outside, and the two men sitting cross-legged in the shack. An invisible cyclone of humidity seemed to whirl about them, dampening their faces and garments. Fearing an incursion of some sort, the little men increased their efforts of a sudden, and began pounding at the old wooden door. A single little man might have struggled to make much of an impact, but a group of them, dozens of them, were able to provide sufficient force to knock the bolt free, and the door came tumbling down, barely missing the figure eight. This action broke Van Melsen's concentration briefly, and he turned his head to greet the intruders. And in they poured, bantam beasts, all of them, faded and indistinct, all semblance of the vessels they possessed, the Fletcher dolls, was gone. Like rats, they rapidly infested the hut, their dark, ethereal limbs clutching and reaching, each and every one of them acutely focused on the P.I. in his circle of protection. But none could reach him, none seemingly capable of penetrating the invisible barrier. Alfred Marsh, frozen in place, could do nothing but watch, clutching his own burden tightly beneath him. Shutting it all out, Van Melsen closed his eyes, and began the chant again. Tetarox! Tetarox! Exorior! Exorior! The little men shrieked in protest, dozens of shrill cries that were piercing to hear. Tetarox! Tetarox! Exorior! Exorior! The young man in his midst fought with the contents of the sack. Tetarox! Tetarox! the investigator repeated, his voice raised now, and with one final utterance of, Exorior! Exorior! Everything faded to black. A click was heard, followed by the rolling of a small wheel, as Van Melsen, there in the shadows, ignited his lighter. Instantly, he came face to face with the object of his summons, the figure in grey, Tetarox.
The P.I. let out an involuntary shriek, taken aback by both the sudden appearance of the figure and the mask it wore. For it wasn't the face of a monster that looked back at him, the face of a creature from another dimension. It was Van Melsen's own face, partially shrouded by a thick, grey hood. The two glared at one another for a space. Now what? came the strange voice of Tetarox, an imitation of Van Melsen's voice. Regaining his composure, the investigator managed to find his words. I—I I think we need to come to some sort of arrangement, he said, eyeballing his weird reflection with resilience. I presume you do not wish to remain here forever. Tetarox knew that he was trapped. Such was the purpose of the figure eight a cell for the conjurer, and a cell for the conjured. Nor, I imagine, said Tetarox, to you. Tetarox also knew that the drawback of the investigator's plan was that, in order for the conjured to remain trapped, the conjurer too must remain trapped. True, Van Melsen continued, anticipating the figure in Gray's response, but I believe I have something to offer that may be of interest to you. Tatarox, wearing the investigator's face, simply stared at him, as if to say, Go on. Liberate the fabric avatars of the little men. They can have me instead. Tatarox laughed, a sickly laugh that filled Van Melsen's belly with butterflies. <laughs> Why would you offer to do such a thing? came the anticipated reply. Call it a sacrifice— a gift, I don't care. That is my offer, take it or leave it. The writhing shapes in the shadows became suddenly agitated, aware that their master was giving serious consideration to the offer on the table. What do you say? Van Melsen asked, his voice full of steel. It's either that, or we sit here till the bulldozers arrive. His reflected face studied him searched for signs of deceit. Tetarox nodded, and as he did so, dozens of unseen figures fell to the ground, inanimate once more. The thing in the bag clutched by Alfred Marsh, it too ceased its movement. It is done, Tetarox announced. Van Melsen nodded, looking deep into his own eyes opposite him. And then he did a most curious thing. He reached into his pocket, and withdrew his carton of cigarettes. All the while, the figure in grey looked on, perplexed by the peculiar actions of the gaunt man in his midst. "'What is this?' Tetarox demanded, sensing deception. "'What do you mean?' Van Melsen said casually. "'Fancy a cigarette is all.' Defiantly, the investigator put a cigarette to his lips, and brought it to the flickering lighter flame. He inhaled deeply, and then, with one huge exhalation, targeted the being in his presence. Tetarox, bound to the circle beneath him, coughed violently as the smoke penetrated his nose and mouth. The mask he wore, the mask of the renowned P.I., came loose, began to slip away. Again, Van Melsen puffed on the cigarette, and blew smoke into the face of the monster, 
in his midst. Gradually, Tetarox's true face was revealed as the fleshy semblance of Peter Van Melsen faded. Beneath was a face not unhuman, but empty of expression, a pale façade with deep-set eyes, a horribly disfigured nose, and a gaping, lipless hole from mouth. The figure in grey coughed and wheezed, slowly succumbing to the strange smoke assaulting him. And it was strange indeed. Seen in broad daylight, one might have detected a subtle yellow tint, this being the result of the curious powder Van Melsen had swallowed prior to summoning Tetarox. What the powder was, and from where the investigator procured the recipe, few would be able to tell. But its devastating effect on those held within the figure eight were clear to see. Hacking and splattering, the robed figure faded like a wraith, felt himself pulled as though by invisible hands out of the circle and back into the heart of whatever dreadful place it was from which he came. The P.I. and Alfred Marsh watched as Tetarox cried a defiant threat of vengeance before dissolving into oblivion, leaving the circle opposite Van Melsen empty once more. Completing the ritual, the investigator extinguished the cigarette and replaced the candle in the empty circle. As he did so, the lanterns of the shack were inexplicably restored. Surrounding both him and the young man with the jet-black hair were dozens of toys, the liberated Fletcher dolls, no longer possessed by the roaming, disembodied spirits of the little men of County Bravadas. All were limp and lifeless, just as they should have been from the very beginning. Amongst them, just a stone's throw away, Van Melsen spotted Norman. He collected the doll swiftly, eager to return the cherished toy to its family in Edgerton. "'You—you tricked him?' came the stammered words of the young man, who, if truth be told, was no longer looking quite so young. With the curse of the little men lifted, in a matter of moments, Alfred Marsh appeared to have withered considerably. "'Call it sleight of hand,' Van Melsen answered, clutching Norman with great care. "'Thank you,' Alfred managed, struggling now to speak. "'Now, now, Mr. Marsh,' the investigator reassured, approaching the frail figure sitting cross-legged on the rug under the lantern. "'I think it's time you got some rest.' Very delicately, Van Melsen placed a hand at the back of Alfred's head, and gently lowered him to the ground. "'Rest, my friend,' he said, as the long-dead Mr. Marsh closed his eyes, and returned to the death that came knocking at his door over a century ago. Van Melsen pulled the small sack from the dead man's skeletal hands, and peeked inside. Assuredly, it was Jacob." the little doll the man had taken from the Howards in the late seventies. "'You're coming with me, mister,' Van Melsen muttered into the sack. There was only one thing left to do. The P.I., exhausted and determined to put an end to a century-long story, grabbed as much twine as he could carry, exited the shack in the middle of the spinning-room, and went about setting the place alight.' 
he ignited the twine and brought it to the shack. It quickly went up, the whole place. Hastily, Van Melsen left the mill, crossed the woods, and trudged once again through the snow-covered pastureland in quest of Belmont Road. He never looked back. Part 7 Homeward Bound The snow was falling again as Van Melsen approached the Hegarty's door on Water Street. An enthusiastic Marcus answered the call immediately, offering the P.I. a silent greeting, in the form of a forced frown and a nod. Maria was at the boy's back shortly after, signalling for Van Melsen to step inside. Brushing an accumulation of snowflakes from his shoulders, the P.I. entered the house and followed mother and son into the living room. "'It's done,' he announced, taking a seat by a roaring log burner. "'Done?' Maria asked, her eyes crossed. "'I imagine the firefighters are on their way as we speak,' Van Melsen added with a nod. "'The mill has been raised.' Maria was aghast. Hadn't been entirely sure what the investigator's plan was going to be. Marcus, on the other hand, had the look of a child to whom Christmas had come early. "'Burnt down?' he asked. Nodding, Van Melsen smiled, impressed with the boy's comprehension of raising a building to the ground. And then another look washed over the boy's face. Sadness. Immediately, the P.I. shook his head. "'Never fear,' he said, reaching into his satchel. "'Norman escaped unscathed.' The funny little face of the Fletcher doll lit up Marcus's, and he clutched the offered toy, yelling, "'Norman!' Maria grinned at this, as her boy fled the living room with the doll in his arms, later heard in conversation with his toy collection, telling them of Norman's adventure at the scary factory. "'What happened?' Maria finally asked, having made tea for the investigator. Van Melsen thought long and hard before speaking. "'It's a long story,' he said, thinking of the disintegration of Alfred Marsh. "'Let's just say a deal was struck, the bad guys were banished, and an old soul was liberated.' Then, thinking of little Jacob, the doll remaining in his satchel, he added, with just the slightest hesitation, "'It's over.' "'What were the little men after?' Maria quizzed. "'I mean, what was it about the bottom of our backs?' "'Bone marrow,' Van Melsen stated simply. "'The little men, whatever they were, sought it for sustenance, "'or so certain reports on the subject suggest.' "'Blimey!' Maria mouthed, then lapsed into silence. "'She was at a loss how to question a paranormal investigator.' Though she'd been a reader of Fortean Weekly for several years, she found the inherent weirdness of its content to be difficult to analyse. In the end, she put a question to him anyway, the only question that seemed to be relevant, in light of Van Melsen's closing statement. "'Are you sure it's over?' Again, the P.I. seemed to ponder the question for the longest time. Staring into the flames of the log-burner, he clutched the teacup in his hands, and took a sip before answering. One can never be sure, 
he said. Maria nodded, surprisingly reassured by his words, despite their uncertainty. And Norman, she continued, he's all right. As good as new. And the little doll was. Norman was cleaner, less tattered. His stampy appendages no longer tinted with blood. He was a doll cleansed, a doll fit for existence amongst children. When the P.I. eventually left Water Street that evening, bidding heartfelt farewells to Maria, Marcus, and, of course, Norman, he decided against hailing down a bus. Instead, he chose to walk the four miles back into Bolton Town Centre. Trudging through the snow, he contemplated the strangeness of the Fletcher case, and pondered Maria's question. Cigarette in hand, he looked westward as he approached Astley Bridge. In the distance, he saw billowing clouds of smoke, heard the wailing sirens of several fire engines. Was it over? Banishment would always have its consequences elsewhere. The figure in grey, or Tatterox as he was known, would be angry with Van Melsen, very angry indeed. Out there beyond the terrestrial realm, Tetarox would be plotting. But Van Melsen wasn't afraid. He was a paranormal investigator. It went with the territory. That night, tucked up in bed in the safety of his room at the old mule, he dreamed, saw his own face looking back at him from the shadowy depths of a dark room, and the face wore the expression of one scheming. Postface. There you have it, came the dulcet tones of Norman Kane, having repeated the tale as recited by Van Melsen some years past. Jack Gill, wide-eyed and excitable, had a dozen questions lined up. Christ, he said, ogling the bundle of crumpled brown paper on the writing flap of the Rosewood Bureau. It's, he continued, only to stop when Cain nodded. Jacob, Cain confirmed. Then, with slow, calculated movements, employing all the deftness his stiff appendages could afford him, he opened the package, revealing the short Fletcher doll in all its glory. Gill wanted to speak, wanted to comment, but the strange spectacle robbed him of his ability to do so. Jacob was writhing, shuffling back and forth, and its eyes, merely dark buttons, were aglow with an awful light. Seems old Tetarox had a few tricks up his sleeve, too, Kane stated, frowning at the squirming form on the writing flap. Peter thinks it's Alfred Marsh in there, but he can't be sure. Gill shook his head disbelievingly. I don't know what to say, he managed unable to take his eyes off the Fletcher doll. Better to say note, Kane said, re-wrapping the package. No choice but to keep it here. Just in case. And with those words, the man with the plastic arms clutched the bundle and returned it to the small drawer from which he'd plucked it. What triggered him? Gill asked quite suddenly. Seems to me that most of them were dormant for decades— what on earth set him off? I asked Peter that very question, Kane stated. 
Time runs differently on the other side. The little men of County Bravadas follow a clock mysterious to us. A decade here might be as little as a minute over there. And so, from our perspective, their comings and goings appear random and unpredictable. What exactly is the other side? Gil pressed. Another plane. Another dimension. Call it what you will. For some reason or other, Margaret Fletcher called it County Bravadas. Why? I doubt we'll ever know. Gil nodded, his mind still clouded by the vision of the writhing doll he'd just witnessed. And what of Alfred Marsh? If he's trapped in that doll somehow, what can you do about it? Nothing, for the time being. Kane said, shrugging his shoulders. Remember, he reiterated, it might not be Alfred Marsh in there. What a fate, though, if it is, Gil muttered, shaking his head. Indeed, Kane agreed. Silence pervaded the private collection, a silence almost broken by the volume of parrying thoughts battling inside Jack Gill's head. Well, he said finally, thanks, Norman. Most enlightening and most disturbing. Kane simply nodded as he locked the small drawer of the Rosewood Bureau and led Gill upstairs in the direction of a more reasonable, more rational world. Hello, ladies and gents. Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.